Greetings from the Long Island Sound podcast. Welcome to the show. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. And call our listener line and leave a message for our guests. Dial 631-800-3579. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Long Island Sound Podcast, where we explore the muse and the music from the North Shore to the South Shore, from New York City to the Hamptons, navigating the wellspring of original music from singer-songwriters and musicians from Long Island, New York. Hi, I'm Steve Yusko from GigDestiny.com. Stay tuned as we explore the Long Island Sound. In today's episode, we travel down an unexpected musical highway. Bill Donnelly is somewhat of a renaissance man to me. We explore his many projects as a percussionist composer with the ever-popular Albums We Love Project, which is a collaboration of local artists covering, you guessed it, the albums we love. In this episode, we discover Bill's bridge between percussion and Tai Chi. Let's listen to Bill's composition, Bridge of Angels, featured on Reza Khan's album, Wind Dance.
Hey, Bill, welcome to the program. Let me tell you, after reading your bio and seeing everything you do, I don't know where you find the time to do it all. It's just kind of amazing. <laughs> well, it's great to meet you, and thanks for having me. Uh, I've been listening to some of your podcasts, and I think you're doing a really great thing for Long Island musicians. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I tell you, it's been a blast. I'm really meeting some great, very generous people. Just kind, good-hearted people. And man, there's nothing better in life than surrounding yourself with people uh, that are generous with uh, their art and, and just their presence, to be honest with you. Um, now, percussion, you know, it's interesting. Uh, sometimes you're, you're I would say you're a percussionist and a drummer, uh, not to just disparage drummers and say, hey, you're just a drummer. And drumming is somewhat of a foreign language uh, to me, uh, in how you pull things together. So maybe you can kind of expand upon the interaction of a percussionist slash drummer within a song, within a band for us to, to kind of bring us, bring us up to date here. Okay. Um, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so I, what I would say is that um, for drummers uh, the, and the, the more evolved players that I, I listen to and, and study, um, Every rhythm evokes a certain response. And that can be based on tempo, subdivisions of the rhythm, where the emphasis or accents are, uh, the pulse. So a drummer's job first is to really understand what rhythm will evoke the best response for a particular song. And that doesn't have to be a complicated thing. It could be really basic. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it, it should be the right thing. And uh, from there, really, uh, the music or, or the rhythm becomes uh, the creative energy, creative force that will move the composition forward, inspire the other players to perform and communicate to the listener. That's what's, what I find interesting about that. I went to a live performance last night, WUSB uh, out in Stony Brook. I really love live performances. Obviously, I like listening to recorded music as well. But watching the dynamic of the artists with the audience and with each other is magical on where they go and where they communicate. And I'm interested from your perspective, how do you, ma how do you, do you manage that? Or how does it kind of come together? I see the looks that artists will give each other and the nods to say, okay, you're, it, you're taking the solo or you're taking this part. But how does that, how does that language come about for you? I think that language comes about through experience more than anything. Um, I, I remember mm -hmm. when I was younger, and I think that this is common among most younger players is, they're more introspective and they're focused on what they are doing. The heads might be down looking at their hands. Um, but at a certain point through self-trust, you, you start to lift your head and look around and start to communicate outward. Um, and so the best musicians really can do that. Um, and, and then in turn communicate with the audience. I think with the uh, famous exception of Miles Davis, who turned his back to the audience uh, point, 
Um, I think the best performers really engage the audience. Um, and sometimes it could be, you know, clapping hands or getting to dance or, you know, I saw Chick Corea do a, a call and response where he would play a little melody on his keyboard and the audience would sing that melody back. And it was a really, really great thing. So I think that uh, at its essence, music performance should be about community and communication. It's interesting that that call and response with the audience and between musicians is, I, I think, just a magical, a magical thing uh, to watch. You know, uh, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna play whether it's a rhythm or a lead, and I'm it's almost like a challenge. Like I'm gonna challenge you to duplicate that, and there is that echo back and forth. It's always not the same, but can take a different twist. And I think that takes us into a different realm, you know, really. And and I, I'm thinking about last night the, where where the enjoyment for me in the audience was that participation. You know, I'm that extra person in the band because I'm participating in my own little way, whether it's dancing, clapping, or singing along. Yeah, I think that is a really great point and an astute observation. I think a lot of people experience that, but don't necessarily put their finger on it. But that's the spirit of music, right? I think when musicians develop, they're developing the physical part of it, you know, their ability to play, maybe the mental part of it through reading music or studying the grades. But I think when you do perform, you are tapping into that spiritual realm. And, And it's when the musicians and the audience are less conscious and they're just letting the music take them to wherever it is that they want to go and that's really the essence of it yeah and you know what it comes down to you know when you talked about younger musicians and we're gonna i really want to touch on sometime in this episode uh some tips and uh for young musicians is i think it does come with experience where you start becoming you start becoming comfortable in your own skin in whatever your talents are and that's where the freedom kind of opens up. And a lot of that has to do with uh, devil-may-care attitude to a certain extent, uh, being confident in what you've woodshedded in your talent or what you've brought your talent out. And then being I'm back to that generous thing where maybe it's just a natural part of a musician to be generous, uh, you know, with, with what they do. And that, that just brings out the beauty of things. Hey, let's do this. Let's roll back the pages a little bit. Tell me about how you got started, how the drumming, how'd you become a drummer? You know, what was what was it like? What were the seeds that, that were planted to make you grow into the person you are as far as music? It, it, was, it was purely accidental because I think the instrument I wanted mm. to play first was piano. Um, and I still, I, I never really studied it I, and I will, but, um, but, but, uh, it started, you know, my brother and I, you know, you interviewed my brother uh, recently, and um, we grew up as, you know, kids, which during the summer, you know, there were days we had nothing to do, maybe played enough baseball right. or whatever. And we said, hey, you know, we, I think we were listening to the Beatles. We said, hey, let's start a band. You'll play keyboards and you'll play guitar and you'll play bass and I'll play drums. And except we didn't have any instruments. So how we were going to do that, I don't know. Um, somehow <laughs> I got a hold of 
a rubber pad and uh, big marching drumsticks. And I just sort of started to pound away. But what followed that was a lot of what I would say were happy accidents. And, and I think for, for any person that you, you are always reaching these little like crossroads, right? And there are arrows or way markers that are leading you in a direction. And, and, and that's really what happened with drumming. So uh, I found out about a local drum corps uh, attached to the fire department. It turned out mm. that the teacher okay. there was a national rudimental champion. He was really, really good. And I knew he had something. So I, um, I, I signed on and I, I stayed there until I was probably in my early 20s. Um, developing, you know, strong rudimental drum corps chops. Um, and then and then it was a series of meetings with people um, ranging from a, a local musician who I, I have no idea who he is uh, or was. But uh, when I was a kid, there were no DJs, there were only bands. And so if my parents would go to a local dance, uh, there would be a band. And I remember this guy pulling up in his car and he had this natural colored uh, Ludwig drum set that really, um, you know, um, just caught my eye and he let me help him load in, uh, which wouldn't, mm. uh, you get a free, ro- free, free roadie, <laughs> but he answered all my questions and he would just kind of, he kind of nudged me forward. Um, I met, um, you know, my brother and I used to go to a lot of local concerts that were sponsored by the towns or in local libraries. And so, we saw Lionel Hampton, uh, we saw mm. Woody Herman, we saw uh, the New York Philharmonic. Uh, and, and with the New York Philharmonic, I, I, uh, I had stuck backstage and met the percussionist, Arnie Lang, who wow. I thought, you know, being a kind of a long haired kid with a, you know, rock and roll t-shirt, I figured he'd shoo me away, you know, he's wearing his mm-hmm. tuxedo, but he actually brought me backstage, uh, introduced me to Zubin Mehta, uh, and then opened up his trap case and started showing me all these rare instruments, excuse me. And um, he uh, he really introduced me to this other world um, and then invited me to study with him should I decide to attend uh, Brooklyn College, where I think he was teaching, which I didn't do. But um, all these years later, I think about five years ago, I caught up with him at 85 years old. He retired from the film. Oh, nice! And I got that lesson from him, which is really wonderful. And um, you know, he he was rich with history of American drumming. So I had that. Uh, I met Buddy Rich when I was about thirteen or fourteen years old, and you know, again, mm-hmm. you know, very he was nice to me. The reputation he had was he wasn't always the nicest guy, but he was fine with me. Um, I was a nervous little kid, so what are you going to do? <laughs> Right. You know, I, I, I was thinking as, as you were chatting there about it, about these happy, I would call them happy occurrences that, that you sought out, really. Um, you know, it just didn't, you didn't sit back and wait for something. You, you used whatever capability you had as a very young man to, to f- find out the people that could be role models for you. And, you know, I was thinking about percussionists and drummers. What's fantastic about your ability to play something, it can be as simple as tapping on a desk or a bucket or a garbage can or you name it. And I almost equate it to uh, 
a soccer player, you know, in these uh, poor countries, uh, they'll roll something together to make a ball and they're playing soccer. And I think uh, there is uh, you can equate that to to drumming. You know, you can take anything and put down a beat and create a sound and create an atmosphere. And that's that's the beauty of it. But the beauty is expanding on it and training yourself and finding the people. I think that's really kind of cool. Yeah. And and I would say that, um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on learning in, you know, colleges and and, and going that route, which, you know, is, is important. But I think it's even more important to just learn at the feet of a master um, and watch them play, mm. ask them about what they did. Um, I really continue to do that. Um, my, uh, I've been, I've been really lucky that some of my teachers became my mentors and friends. Um, Rod Morgenstein, who people might know from the Dixie Dregs and an eighties rock mm-hmm. band called Winger, uh, which was a really underrated band, uh, is somebody that I continue to watch. If I have questions, I can, I could always reach out to him. I mean, he called me from the Houston Astrodome when they were about to perform that night and, you know, made time Mm -hmm. to answer my little questions um, because it was important to him too. Um, Jerry Brown, who uh, had worked with Stanley Clark, Stevie Wonder, Lionel Richie, and is is currently overseas with Diana Ross. We're going to catch up uh, next week when we're both in Spain. Um, Another one, um, he's, he's a master of a groove and, uh, he and I will talk about the most subtle elements of the instrument that helped me elevate my playing now. And uh, just last week, I was uh, in New York watching Tom Breckline, uh, who's also a Long Islander. Both Rod and Tom mm-hmm. are both from Long Island. Tom has played with um, Kenny Loggins, Chick Corea, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, and a bunch of others. And he was in New York playing with um, Don Randy, who's one of the original members of the Wrecking Crew. And they were kind of doing a okay. uh, 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 a review of a lot of songs that he played on for the Beach Boys, Linda Ronset, and things like that. A lot of, you know, simple pop tunes. But I was watching Tom play, and he was bringing an element to it that I thought was great and things I would have never thought of. So it was nice to you know, chat with him after and say, Hey, how did you do this one thing? You know, show that mm-hmm. to me. And that even now, um, I've been playing probably over 40 years now, those little subtle variations really can make the difference between good and great. And I want to keep working toward great. You know, I, I think that's where we have, we have something in common is that healthy curiosity and I'll say a little bit, a bit of boldness to say, hey, you know what? This is important to me. You're good at it. Tell me how you do it. And finding those mentors who actually, who actually will spend the time with you. And guess what? You know what? I, it's, I remember as a little kid, I was really interested into electronics. And we had this little electrician, Mr. Carmine. I don't know why this came into my mind. What a generous guy. And he saw I had an interest in electronics. And sure enough, the next time he came by our house to do some work, he brought me this resistor chart and taught me about the colors of, of, of how to uh, understand resistors. And that was so generous. 
I, it's probably why I like to be a techie toy guy today is because he took the time. You know, I'm just a little, you know, snot-nosed kid at at six, seven years old. But he saw an interest and he he was able to um, help that seed grow. Let's do this. Let's just take a quick break, Bill. And when we come back, man, let me tell you, we've got so many great things to dive into uh, about percussion, about, you know, Bill's backstory. Hey, stick with us. It's going to be worth it. Are you a singer-songwriter who wants to take your music to the next level and you need some professional musicians and really that expertise to help you along? Well, check out Melts in Your Ears Studio. It's Mike Nugent's studio. If you like what you've heard here today, Mike's the guy who can make the connections, put the tracks together, and give you a quality product. Check it out. Hey, everybody. We're back with Bill Donnelly. Before we get back into things, Bill, I do want to give a shout out to your brother, Dan, uh, who's generous enough to introduce me to you. And I, I, I'm so happy that you're, you're on the program. And it's interesting, uh, the family dynamics of people who develop their craft uh, of playing, t- playing together. Maybe we can get into that a little bit. But I'd really like to touch upon uh, your song that we was introduced in the beginning of the podcast. So tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll see where the, the journey takes us after well, that. Sure. Okay, thanks. Um, so that, that that song is is Bridge of Angels. Um, you can find it on a Reza Khan record, um, and you can find it on YouTube. I mean, let me interrupt you. By the way, for the, the listener, we will have chapter marks. So any of the people we're talking about, boom, the link's going to be right there for you to look things up. Sorry, Bill, I didn't mean to right jump right. on you. Um, okay. I, you know, I'm a composer uh, of music, but but I'm a slow composer. Uh, I don't write every day. I, I, my output is is fairly low, but I do have a couple of things that I write from time to time, and then have an opportunity to present or record them. And this was it was just that um, Bridge of Angels actually is is a reference to uh, an actual uh, very sad uh, and low point. Uh, in the in the life of my extended family, uh, who suffered a tragedy, um, and the intent of the of the title and the melody was really uh, to maybe offer hope. And um, I had been writing that uh, piece for a world music ensemble. I, the orchestration was completely different for that. It was the melody was actually played on a cello. Um, I had um, kind of Tibetan bells in, in the background and a kind of a more of a world music feel to it. But um, mm-hmm. Reza, you know, Reza is um, uh, he, he's a good friend. He's a very good musician. Um, he's done a lot of recordings. And uh, he, he and I met uh, on a video shoot uh, following one of his records. Uh, I didn't play on the record, but, but uh, he needed a drummer for the video. And seeing an opportunity, I, I did my homework and I uh, showed up and looked like I knew the tunes because I pretty much did um, just mm-hmm. a couple of days um, and, and wound up signing on to the band for a couple of years. And, and he was kind enough to invite each of us to contribute uh, a piece of music to uh, his one recording wind dance. And so I, uh, I put Bridge of Angels forward and, you know, adapted it more to his style uh, right. to make it work. But, uh, but, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pretty tune. Um, and, you know, I'm very proud of it. Thanks. Thanks for uh, for letting us uh, showcase that. And and int- it's Raza, Raza or 
Reza Khan. So Reza Khan. Yeah, so Reza, yeah. you know, it's interesting. We're 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 the same age. We were born a month apart. Uh, we both grew up listening to the same music. Uh, you know, we we both were talking a lot about Brampton Comes Alive. If you remember that record. Oh sure, yeah. But yeah. Reza grew up in India, and I grew up in New York. So we have all this commonality, but we were literally across the globe. What's interesting, too, is is I'd like you to explain to me in our audience tonal qualities of different symbols and, and what you use. Now, you, you talked about the world music feel uh, and the, how sound can um, bring about certain emotions and rhythms. I'm, I'm very interested in, in how you approach that. How do you pick it? That sort of thing. Well, I think that... Um Everybody has a different way of playing. I've heard some drummers that tend to, you know, tune their drums very low, kind of thuddy, um, almost dead sounding. Uh, you have jazz drummers that tend to tune their drums maybe higher pitched. Um, and I'm, I, I would say I'm probably somewhere in the middle of that. I, I do mm -hmm. tend to hear music melodically, um, maybe more than rhythmically. Uh, in some sense, and that might go back to the interest I had in piano. Um, there are some drummers that are, you know, maybe only listen to the bass or listen more to the bass player and really lock in with them. Uh, I tend to listen a lot to the front line. What, what are the vocals doing or what is the horn or guitar playing? And that it's just natural orientation for me. And I think that um, my, my selection of drums, cymbals, uh, and my tuning of those are reflective of that. So, I like to have a fairly wide tonal range um, with my bass drum, which a lot mm -hmm. of people tend to, you know, put pillows and blankets and make it really dead sounding. Sure. Uh, mine is that. wide open. Um, my lowest tom will now be maybe one step higher from that. And then each tom will go up almost a third. Um, so I could play a melody on my drums and if I mm -hmm. want to check my tuning I literally can go and if I can play that okay. little melody then I know that they're where I need them to be um, and then I'll add the snare drum on top of that and the cymbals I, I tend to think of the same way my ride cymbal will double as a crash for me or I will ride it as a crash like Ringo did uh, with the Beatles and then I have the mm -hmm. next smaller size which might be 18 and then 16 and i've got two small splash symbols and again if i if i play each symbol there's almost a little scale that exists there okay and then the creative part is is breaking all of that up my favorite drummers mm. are really melodic players um rod morgenstein who i mentioned earlier uh, there are certain phrases he played almost 30 years ago i can remember specifically because of the melodicism that was in his playing. Interesting. To throw something out of left field, how do you feel about electric drum, drum kits? Well, I, th I think they're great. Um, but I think that, uh, and, and they have a purpose, right? If you're playing in a small room or a controlled environment, uh, mm -hmm. they are great to have. I think that the mistake that, uh, electronic drum manufacturers make that may be different than what keyboard players or keyboard manufacturers do is keyboard manufacturers manufacture an instrument that's going to have new sounds and 
drum manufacturers are trying to capture old sounds. Oh, it, interesting. Yeah. I personally, um, I have electronics. I really don't use them. Um, when gotcha. I was uh, working with a keyboard player that was a friend of mine, when drum machines were coming very prominent and he was doing a lot of dance records in Manhattan, he's making a good living at it. He said, hey, you should get into programming because you'll work if you get into that. And I, he said that to me while we were standing in the power station, which is one of the most famous sure. studios. And I went, nah, who's <laughs> ever going to do that? And I just didn't go in that direction. I liked the feeling of hitting a drum. I liked the movement of air. I liked the vibration. I liked the way it makes another person feel. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of, you know, primitive, but I, I liked that. Right, right, exactly. Talking about primitive, because we had another discussion the other day. You spoke about the role a drummer has in African communities. I'd like you to touch upon that, because I I found it so interesting. So um, my exploration into that kind of area came about as as a result of um, trying to do some self-therapy. Um, over a couple of years. I, I had at the time just left a band that uh, was you know, close to getting a recording contract. <coughs> Excuse me. We, um, uh, it was a very good band. Uh, I, I had not listened to that music for almost 25 years. Um, and when I pulled it mm. out and actually listened to it objectively, uh, uh, you know, could, could feel good about what I did, but, but uh, it's for a variety of reasons, uh, including just a massive, changing the music scene because this little band called Nirvana came out with smells like teen spirit. And if you weren't a rock band in Seattle, you're probably not getting signed that year. Um, I, and I was, I was sort of at a crossroads. I gave myself a deadline to, to be in that, that world. And, uh, and I wondered if I had, uh, what was going to be able to do it. I did not want to be, that person that was getting into the thirties and forties and still kind of hanging on to that big break. And that's a tough decision when you spend all your life, um, working towards this goal and, you know, having all these people that were supportive and and guided you. So I went Mm -hmm. to about two years of self therapy. Um, and I came across this book called the healing drum and in it, uh, the first half of the book discussed, the culture of the village in Africa that this uh, drummer came from. And the second half of the book talked about the role of the drummer. And it was really, it was a really fascinating book because there were rituals that they would uh, do there that, you know, we would maybe characterize as almost savage practices. You know, like they would, they talk about beating a person with a, you know, a batch of branches, you know, small, small branches mm-hmm. and things like that. But it actually had purpose because what they were trying to do is kind of arrest the nervous system. It was a healing tool. It was, it was just archaic. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. the drummer um, I found uh, was a participant in the town's births, rites of passage, weddings uh, and deaths. So basically every communal function, the drummer was a part of that. And that was an, an epiphany for me because I realized that in America, unless you're, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, an Elon Musk type of person, 
uh, you're not considered a quote success. But I, mm. I realize that that's not true. Um, that if you serve your community, your local village, uh, in weddings, uh, in backyard parties, in the local bar where people just want to get away from the work, the news, and everything that's going on. And if we, as musicians, and I say this collectively, but really all of your guests too, um, if for a couple of hours we kind of change the way they feel, the way they think, uh, we open up their hearts a little bit, then what we're doing is actually profound. It's just very local. Interesting. You know, it, uh, I was just thinking about the pandemic and the aspect of that contribution you make to community introspection and hope and that sort of thing. We had a, a period of time where we're locked down, literally, and uh, sad and interesting to watch different musicians struggle to find their voice and uh, contribute their art. A lot of big creative time being in, in lockdown. Uh, and I think we're starting to see the fruits of it. Uh, you know, it's different singer songwriters, you know, full albums, you know, uh, that they've banged out because they've had that introspective time. So that's, I guess that's for me, the silver lining on a very difficult time, that introspection uh, of where you go with things. And um, uh, you can't always do it alone. Uh, and you need help, and that's where community plays such a vital role in our overall health, mental health, and everything else, you know, and uh, anyway. Well, I, I agree with you, and, and I would say that um, the creative element uh, in, in America, it tends to be underrated and undervalued. Um, we're very sports-oriented. We're very competitive as a society. There's nothing wrong with that, but I find that, um, you know, creative people – are always looking for new ways of doing things. They are collaborative, inclusive. Uh, they, they work with imagination. And, you know, in the United States, being competitive is a good thing, but, but the, really the nation was birthed on creativity uh, because they came here with nothing. Right, right. When you have, when you have competition run amok, then things get really uh, nasty <laughs> to, 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 to bring it out there. Hey, listen, let's just take another quick break. When we come back, I really want to talk about, by the way, just I got to throw this in real quick, uh, about a uh, project that you put together called uh, Albums We Love. And we saw, I'll just little, leave a little teaser before the break. I saw this the other day. I brought more than a handful of people. And let me tell you, it was wow. We'll talk about it when we come right back. Hi, Steve Yusko from Gig Destiny here. Well, as you're probably listening to this podcast, you're probably thinking about that musician who would make a fantastic guest here on the Long Island Sound. But we'd like to hear their story. We'd like to hear their music. So have them reach out to us at gigdestiny.com and we'll explore their craft. Now, back to our podcast. Hey, everybody. We are back with Bill Donnelly. And I gave you a little teaser about albums we love. A fantastic idea. That was Bill's idea. Bill, tell us about it. So albums we love um, was actually nothing more than um, a, uh, an impulse idea that I had. Uh, and at the time, Peter Gabriel was touring uh, to promote his So record. And it's 25th anniversary. Mm -hmm. and I went to the show. really loved it. And so I recruited... Uh, my brother and some other local musicians and said, Hey, if we do four or five rehearsals and 
one show of this record, would you be willing to do it? Everybody had other things going on at the time. So I figured this is a short runway. It's got a definite end date, easy to participate in. And so we did it. And what basically what happened was the, uh, the performance was beyond expectations. And anybody that was there that night was just completely floored. Um, we thought we were done, but uh, we got an inquiry from another venue saying, hey, we heard you guys were amazing. Would you come play for us too? The group was already together. So we said, sure, we'll do one more show and then break it up. Um, now, before you go, before you go on, Bill, let me kind of clarify. You took the so album and did the so album, Peter Gabriel from start to finish with a collaborative group, not a tribute band. You didn't dress up as Peter Gabriel. Um, it was kind of a, an interesting concept, uh, not to disparage tribute bands. There's a, there's a place for that, but you were true to the music is, is, uh, I assume your approach out of the gate. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and, and that is correct. Um, we did not try to uh, be a tribute band, uh, although my brother does sing really well, like Peter Gabriel. So it kind of out of the gate, it was a, it was a good way for us to start. Uh, but we were done for that year. Uh, and, and then the fall came around and people started asking, well, what are you, what are you doing next? We had no idea. Uh, and so uh, we decided, well, you know, let's do... Why don't we do Fleetwood Mac rumors? Um, we had a little change of personnel. Some people left. Uh, new people came in, uh, mostly around availability and commitments. Well, we played that mm -hmm. record, and that went extremely well. And so we started to realize that we were on to something. Um, but again, we at that point, we didn't even have a name. We were just doing <laughs> this thing. And, and one club owner said, hey, what's the name of the band? And I went, uh, albums we love. Because right. it's all, I mean, it was the most simplistic thing. That's what we were doing. We were playing albums that we love. And that has become sort of the um, guiding principle of the group. We all have to love it. We have to all mm -hmm. agree on the record. Um, and there are certain criteria that, that we have in place now um, when we're thinking about what we're going to do. But, but typically what we do is get together every November with a bottle of wine and, and some, you know, recordings and we start listening and discussing and, uh, horse trading. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if we, if we get to the bottom of that bottle of wine, we haven't made a decision yet. Then we open another bottle and try again. <laughs> uh, so we keep it fun. What, what I think is interesting from an audience perspective, and I'll talk about the people that I brought, by the way, the latest, uh, albums we love, uh, project is the deja vu album, uh, from Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Great album. Love the album. Now in a person who loves going to see live music and speaking to friends, they don't know albums we love, the group, uh, you know, by any means. But they do know that album. And it did peak in. And I'm just, maybe I was marketing to my friends. Hey, do you like that album? Yeah, guess what? There's this band they put together and we're going to go listen to it, among other things. Great, I love that album. It was a draw. It wasn't your personalities or anything else. It was about the music. And that's what I think is a great focus. And I tell you, the feedback, and this is honest feedback of people who don't typically go out to seek live music, said, hey, you know what? That was something different. I really enjoyed it. I'd like to do that again. Uh, so I think you really got something there. Uh, it's nice to hear. And uh, I agree with you. Um, I really love the people in that group. Uh, we we mm -hmm. get along extremely well. No egos, no prima donnas. Uh, it's really about the music. And 
we really will only do about a half a dozen shows a year. So it's okay. uh, it's a word of mouth, grassroots following. People who know will follow us and and come to see you know a number of shows, uh, and and really like to stay in touch with us. And and we like that. Uh, we we get to do something that's special and unique, mm-hmm. and then we go back to the other projects that we work on. Nice. So you'll find uh, the albums we love. Um events on the gigdestiny.com site uh, and any other sites that you post that up, I'm happy to put in the chapter marks. Tell me about the other projects and other things that you're involved in. Sure. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm kind of attached to a few different things right now. Um, there is Solo Drums, which um, I think you have a recording that I sent you, and that that's a percussion trio mm-hmm. that just plays very sporadically, but it's a meeting of percussionists around rhythm-based music. I play mm. in a, an R&B soul group called the Rhythm Kings, uh, which okay. if you like Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, you know, that type of music, um, plus some some other things, uh, it's a really good band uh, and a lot of fun to play. And we've got a really great singer. Um I play in a group called Xanthi Misfits, which uh, is more of a jazz blues group playing music mm-hmm. from bands like the Yellow Jackets or Joe Sample and Robin Ford. And then recently signed on with Ricky and the Rockets, which is the name that was used by uh, the Super Tramp Band when they were on tour. They had a night off. They would want to go to a club and just play music that they grew up listening to. Um, and nice. so Rick Davies, who's, uh, you know, uh, here on Long Island, uh, will play with that group that includes uh, Mike Riley uh, from Pure Perry League, who's like a really great bass player and a great person, and G.E. Smith, which uh, oh. most people would know from Saturday Night Live, um, Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. all the notes. And uh, it's, it's a really great band. We, we do some super tramp, um, but we also do a lot of uh, kind of roots rock music and um that that was uh it's been a pleasure hey i'm gonna interrupt you because let me tell you something i i do a little homework on my guests before i uh bring them onto the podcast you know we have a no knucklehead policy and so far so good uh not with you bill but in general and i came across this documentary on a guy named bill donnelly who's a tai chi master and i was floored by it i'm gonna put a link in the chapter marks Tell me about the intersection of Tai Chi and music. It's a, it's a great question, and it's an answer that I'm still working on, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right, so that means another episode. Yeah, so it could be. I'm going to lock in for that. Entirely different episode. <laughs> what happened was, um, when I before I got into music, I, I really had an interest in Kung Fu. When I was a kid, when other kids were maybe watching Batman, I used to watch The Green Hornet for the 10 seconds that Bruce Lee would appear. And um, <laughs> I, I wanted to do that, but there were no Kung Fu schools around. So I, I kind of put that on the shelf, moved on, became a musician. But um, I did start training um, in my mid thirties um, and managed to find a really excellent teacher, uh, Sifu Kaparos. And uh, he really took me under his wing. I have earned a black stash in uh, Choi Le Fu Kung Fu and was adopted into the lineage, which goes back to Toy Sun, China. But um, 
I, uh, I had tripped upon Tai Chi because I thought, oh, this is easy. I'll do it as a warm up and then I'll do the real thing and take a Kung Fu class. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, <clears throat> I took that class and it, and it just kicked my ass. And I realized then and there that there was probably something more to that. So I started to, mm. to train and, and about a year or so later, that instructor moved on to open the second martial arts school. And my Sifu, my, my teacher uh, basically threw me out on the floor and said, okay, you teach. And mm -hmm. I knew really not how to teach this stuff. And within about three months, I lost every student because I had no idea what I was doing. Oh, man. And he was so great about it. And he was like, don't worry, you know, just keep keep showing up and, you know, and, and, and you'll learn. And, uh, you know, for a person who's trying to run a business, that's that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, but, that's a huge leap. Yeah, and to your point about, you know, these these special people in your life, you know, he certainly mm. has been one of them too. And so uh, slowly, you know, I kept rebuilding. I rebuilt full classes and I became really interested and proficient in, in Tai Chi. And so I started to now think, well, where is there any relation to this stuff? Um, and I, as I was thinking about it, I was coming across other musicians that were thinking and, and kind of pursuing the same thing. Most notably, mm -hmm. Alex Acuna, who uh, people might know from Weather Report, uh, but he's played with, you know, U2 to Al Jarreau. He's on tons of movie soundtracks. Um, very, mm -hmm. very well-known drummer and percussionist, uh, a, a incredible human being. And he's uh, studying at 76 years old, is still studying martial arts and Tai Chi. And so he and I talk about a lot of this stuff. He told me that Bruce Lee told his teacher, Dan Inosanto, that music, dance, and martial arts were all the same. Well, that's okay. that's a pretty straightforward statement. So what does it mean? And, uh, and I started to really investigate all of that. Um, what I find that is the uh, connecting principle of those is when I'm playing music or when I'm playing a Tai Chi form, there's a state of grace that you move into uh, that really can't be defined. It can only be experienced. Okay. Um, and I feel that both communicate the feeling of what it means to be alive. Okay. Wow. And so I'm learning this now. I'm integrating rhythm into my Tai Chi. Um, and in developing a program to actually teach drummers and musicians how to do that. And I'm finding that the process is actually improving my music and my playing nice in a more natural way. Nice. Now, do you have so a, it's, it's, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Do you have a book coming out? I, I think you had mentioned on this or. So, yeah. So I'm working with an editor on the, the final draft of a book. It's right now that this book is just on uh, Tai Chi and it basically is mm -hmm. not how to, but why. Okay. To do tai Chi. And, and it's really based on um, my own study, my experience, my instruction, my daily practice, my, my questions. And it addresses things around emotional balance, um, uh, multitasking uh, with purpose, um, strength and virtue, conflict, mm. and balancing martial and civility, which I think is missing. Right. Right. I mean, it sounds like a recipe well needed today. And I, I want I want that book as soon as it, it comes out, um, because um, 
considering the state of affairs of of the world, it sounds like an antidote for uh, how to live uh, a joyous life and to and to the full, which I think we all strive try to strive for. Hopefully, well, I, I agree. I mean, I one of the things that occurred to me when I was writing the book, which has taken me over five years mm. to do. Uh, because I just chipped away at a little of time and it's given me a lot of time to, to kind of ponder this stuff. But there's a, there's a, um, there's a, uh, a reliance that we've fallen into, uh, for our politicians to do for us, for our healthcare industry to take care of us, mm. for our employer to pay us. And what we've lost is self-reliance. Um, and so I believe in everything that I think I, I stand for as a musician uh, in a person is, is that you have to self-cultivate. You have to develop your strength. You have to uh, create a unity within yourself. And when you do that, you're, the way you look at the world changes. And because of that, you start to influence change. And that's how we change the world. Nice, nice. So <laughs> it's amazing the roads we go on in this podcast. I feel so blessed Tell us um, if you had advice for uh, new young musicians getting to the business, what's some of the things or the challenges that you've gone through or what advice would you give a new musician? Yeah, let's say that. I, I, w- I have a couple of things that I think are been common themes for me that I, I could share. I, w- I would say first is you know, really master the craft. Um, and by that, I mean those boring, boring exercises that you have to do over and over and over as a beginner. Mm-hmm. You should do because that really is the path to mastery. I see a lot of um, teachers right now, you know, will teach the latest drum beat to the latest song. And, and I understand why they would do that, right? You want to keep kids interested. But, but for somebody who's serious, you know, you really have to do the homework, listen to the great musicians, um, understand the music that you're dealing with develop professionalism and interpersonal skills because mm. it is a business and you need to be able to understand the interests of the other people and you have to be able to protect your own self-interest, but do it in a way that's not offensive. Um, say yes to anything that comes your way right? because right. you'll, you'll earn from it. You'll learn from it. And under pressure, a lot of times you really will have the most significant growth. I've learned more about other types of music and all the things I've been in, whether it's Latin, reggae, funk, um, African music, um, by just saying, yeah, I'll do it. And then once I'm there, I'm going, how the hell am I going to do this? Let me find recordings. Let me find this. Let me find that. Let me find a mentor. Um, and out of that, I may not be the most proficient, you know, Latin drummer ever. Um, I don't want to be, but but I can cover it now. So I think saying yes is important. And I recently had a lesson uh, that came to me from the author, Colin McCann, who wrote a book called Transatlantic and uh, Let the Great World Spin. He's uh, from Dublin. He lives in New York now. Uh, He's one of my favorite authors. And I met him at a book signing. Mm -hmm. And while I was writing my book, I said, you know, I put my book in front of him to sign it. And I said, what's What's one word that you would give as advice to a writer? And he went, one word? <laughs> I went, yeah, you're a writer. You can do it one word, right? Mm. Ah, let me think. One word. Fail. Uh, what? 
fail. Samuel Beckett, fail. Try again, fail. Try harder. And I, I have to tell you that that has really stuck with me. When I was writing the book, there were some days where I thought, wow, I'm going to change the world with this. And other days I look at it and go, who's going to buy this? It's awful. <laughs> I hate it. And then I would hear columns say, fail and fail again. And I really think that um, we, there has to be an absence of fear of failure mm. to be a musician and to be a performer. It's okay to fall on your face. We're not going to die. You right. will learn. You will grow. Um, and if you're not failing, you're probably not trying. Great. Well, take it from a guy who's failed thousands and thousands of time. And you've given you've given us so much in this episode. I really, uh, truly want you back. When that book gets released, promise me we'll do an episode of the Long Island Sound because I think it's so important. And uh, and I, I, you know, I really want to thank you for your time, Bill, here today. Uh, I was thinking I start the podcast with a drum beat. And as I go out, I end with a drum beat. That, that goes into a, a song of my good friend, uh, Mike Nugent. So uh, uh, you've helped me with my rhythm in life, and I'm sure the, the, uh, the benefits of people listening to this uh, podcast will be exponential and we'll probably never know about it, but uh, I'm sure it'll come back. So um, look so forward to having you back. Look forward to seeing albums we love and checking out your other projects. And uh, thanks for being here. Really, really appreciate it. Good talking to you. All right, be well. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Till next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. We really love to hear from you. And call our listener line at 631-800-3579. Again, thanks so much. Be well.